We come to our Bible reading now. If you have access to Bibles in the, in the pews there, we're going to read from Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to chapter 8, verse 1, and then some verses in chapter 9, but starting at Acts chapter 7, verse 54. <clears throat> And this section is titled, The Stoning of Stephen. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. And then if we turn over to chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas in Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, 
and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. It's always good to hear somebody reply. You know somebody's there then. Um, Jason suggested that I had about 10 minutes to write uh, some kind of sermon. I can't write a sermon in 10 minutes. Um, so <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. But uh, as I began to think about it over the brief time I had, um, I remembered that as we got towards the end of last year, we had a quite thrilling baptismal service. Um, and even more thrilling is the fact that we're going to have another baptismal service in a few weeks' time. And I thought that Ross would probably, over the next few weeks at some stage, uh, be challenging us afresh on the whole question of commitment to Christ and uh, baptism and membership. And so I thought I'd pick up the story that we all know, the story of Paul's conversion. Perhaps the best-known conversion story ever recorded, that of Paul as recorded in the Acts of the Apostle. Paul was born in Tarsus, a city with a population of probably around 500,000. I guess that's about the size of Edinburgh. Tarsus today is in Turkey, in the south and centre of the country, just a couple of uh, miles from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. In Paul's day, Tarsus was in Cilicia and was part of the massive Roman Empire. The city itself stood in a wide plain between the mountains and the sea and was renowned as a commercial and educational centre. Its wharfs were crowded with the produce and people of every nation. Educationally, it was held in the highest regard, and it sent out from its university distinguished teachers of Stoic philosophy and Roman law. Tarsus in Paul's day was a prosperous and flourishing city. There's little recorded detail of the early life of Paul. What's known is that he was born in Tarsus, a Roman citizen. He was of the tribe of Benjamin and a zealous member of the Pharisee party. There's a traditional view that Paul's ancestors came from Galilee. They may have migrated to Tarsus for commercial reasons, or they may have been settled there as colonists by a Syrian ruler. Other scholars have suggested that Paul lived for a time in Jerusalem as a child, and it was there that he was educated by the well-known teacher Gamaliel. The evidence clearly suggests that Paul's family were of some means, and that they had a fairly prominent status within the community. Paul was certainly well educated, and he was a young man when given official authority to direct the persecution of Christians. 
At that time, he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council. It's also interesting to note Paul's recorded appearance. A man of little stature, thin hair, crooked legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows joining and nose somewhat hooked. He was no George Clooney. (laughs) Full of grace, for sometimes he appeared like a man, sometimes he had the face of an angel. Finally, we need to note that there's no evidence to suggest that Paul was acquainted with Jesus during his earthly ministry. We pick up the story in the final hours of Stephen's life because they give us an insight into Paul's character before his conversion. Verse 54 of Acts 7 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. The man who was so upsetting the Jews was Stephen. He had been arrested after being openly critical of traditional thinking of the day. Stephen clearly had a vision of a world for Christ, and much of what he said was totally unacceptable to the Jewish leadership. For example, to the Jew, the temple was specially precious. There alone, sacrifices could be offered. There alone could God be truly worshipped. But Stephen insisted that men had worshipped God long before there ever was a temple. He argued that God doesn't dwell exclusively in any temple made with hands. Stephen had gone on to say that when the Jews crucified Jesus, they were setting the coping stone on a policy they had followed throughout their history. For all through the ages, they had persecuted the prophets and abandoned the leaders whom God had raised up. Well, that would go down like a lead balloon. These were hard truths for men who believed themselves to be the chosen people. And it's little wonder that they were infuriated when they heard this. A speech like this could only have one outcome. Stephen had courted death, and death would surely come. But Stephen didn't see their faces distorted with rage. His gaze had gone beyond time, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But when he said so, this seemed to them the greatest of blasphemies. The penalty for blasphemy, for speaking evil of God, was stoning to death. Again, it should be noted that this was no judicial trial. This was a lynching, because the Sanhedrin had no right to put anyone to death. It was a surge of blind, uncontrollable anger that killed Stephen. The manner of Stephen's death was quite horrific. He was stoned to death, taken to a height, and then thrown down. The witnesses had to do the actual throwing down. If the fall killed the man, good and well. If not, great boulders were hurled down upon him until finally he died. What a horrible death for Stephen. The first verse of chapter 8 is very significant. It says, And Saul was consenting to his death. Someone who witnessed and agreed with Stephen's death would never forget it. The sheer horror of it, and yet the calm and assurance of Stephen in the midst of this horror. Stephen knew that 
beyond all that men could do to him, there was awaiting him the welcome of his Lord. Stephen followed his Lord's example in praying for the forgiveness of his executioners. The lesson of history is that the man who follows Christ the whole way will find strength to do things which it seems humanly impossible to do. For Stephen, the whole dreadful turmoil finished in a strange peace. He fell asleep. To Stephen, there came the peace which comes to a man who has been faithful to his Lord and done the right thing, even if the right thing kills him. Stephen's death must have made a lasting impression on Saul as he was then. How could a man do die such a horrible death with such calm and assurance, forgiving those who were killing him? Saul would know that Stephen was one of those early Christians. We move forward now to chapter 9, where we find Saul preparing to journey to Damascus to further the campaign of persecution of the early Christians. William Barclay comments that we must try as far as we can to enter into Paul's mind as he sets off on the journey to Damascus. When we do, we'll see that this is not a sudden conversion, but it is a sudden surrender. Something about Stephen lingered in Paul's mind, and he just could not shift it. How could a bad man die like that? In order to still this insistent doubt, Paul plunged into the most violent action possible. It often happens that when a man sets out on some action, the rightness of which he doubts, he redoubles his efforts and drives himself even harder to convince himself that he's right. He's trying to silence the doubts. His first action was to persecute the Christians in Jerusalem. This only made matters worse because once again he was bound to ask himself what secret these simple simple people had which made them face peril and suffering and loss, absolutely serene and unafraid. So he plunged into ever more violent action and then went to the Sanhedrin. The writ of the Sanhedrin ran wherever there were Jews. Paul had heard that certain Christians had escaped to Damascus, and he asked for letters of credit that he might go to Damascus to extradite them. That journey only made matters worse. It was about 140 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. Scott Rail wasn't working then. The journey would be on foot and would take about a week. Paul's only companions were the officers of the Sanhedrin, a kind of police force. Because Paul was a Pharisee, he could have nothing to do with them, so he would walk alone. And as he walked, he thought, because there wasn't much else to do. The way went through Galilee, and Galilee brought this Jesus even more vividly to Paul's mind. So he journeyed on, the road climbing Mount Hermon, down below lay Damascus, described by many as a lovely white city in a green plain. This region had a characteristic phenomenon. 
when the hot air of the plain met the cold air of the mountain range, violent, ele violent electrical storms resulted. We don't know, of course, what exactly happened, but just as Paul was at this point on the journey, the Bible tells us that a light from heaven flashed around him. Out of this storm, Christ spoke to Paul. And in that moment, the long battle was over. Paul surrendered to Jesus Christ. Into Damascus, Paul went, a changed man. And what a change. He who had intended to enter Damascus like an avenging fury was led by the hand into that city, blind and helpless as a child. We need to note what Christ said to Paul. Christ said to him, go into the city and you will be told what to do. Up until now, Paul had been doing what he liked, what he thought best, what his will dictated. From now on, he would be told what to do. Never again would he take his way, but rather Christ's way. The Christian is a man who has stopped doing what he wants to do and who has begun to do what Jesus Christ wants him to do. These qualities are very evident in Ananias. Paul's reputation had gone before him. To Ananias there came the message from God that he must go and help Paul. He's directed to the street called Straight. This was a great street that ran straight from the east to the west of Damascus. It was divided into three parts, a center part where the traffic ran, two sidewalks where the pedestrians thronged and where the merchants under canvas awnings sat in their little booths and plied their trade. When that message came to Ananias, it must have sounded totally unreasonable to him. Go and help the man who came here to throw you into prison and who would have liked to kill you. Ananias might well have approached Paul with suspicion. He might well have begun with recriminations and blame, but no, his first words are, Brother Saul. What a welcome was there. It's one of the finest examples of Christian love and Christian forgiveness. That is what Christ can do. Significant changes in Paul. He was blind, then he could see. He was immediately baptized. He immediately began to witness where he was in Damascus. In the account of Paul's conversion, there are challenges for us all. First of all, conversion. That involves a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It's not a second-hand experience. We're not Christian because we live in a Christian country or because we come to church now and again. There has to be a real living relationship with the Lord Jesus. Conversion involves repentance, turning from our own way to his way. Certainly that was the case in Paul's experience, intending to persecute the Christian church, instead turning from that path and joining the Christian church. Up to that moment, Paul had been doing what he liked, what he thought best, what his will dictated. But no more. As a Christian, 
he now does what Christ wants him to do. Conversion involves total obedience. Paul did exactly as the Lord told him. Ananias did exactly as the Lord told him. But Lord, no buts, no ifs, obey. The Christian life involves total obedience. Conversion involves baptism. The New Testament is very clear in its teaching. Repent and be baptized in that order. Immediately after Ananias met Paul, Paul rose and was baptized. You'll note he didn't go to classes. There wasn't a great delay. He didn't have to be met by a couple of deacons in the church. It was as straightforward as that. When Jesus started his ministry, he was first baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Conversion involves baptism. Conversion involves witnessing. Paul immediately began to witness in Damascus, where he happened to be at the time. Now, we are not all preachers, and I've just proved that this morning. But we should all be witnessing in our different situations. So the challenge is for us today. Have you had that personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented, turned away from your own way to his way? Or are you still holding on to some of the old? Jesus says, repent. Are you being obedient to the Lord? Is he Lord of your life? Paul was told, get up and go into the city. You will be told what to do. Ananias was told, go to the house of Judas and see to Paul. Are you where he wants you to be, doing what he wants you to be doing? Have you been baptized publicly, witnessing to your faith in Christ? Are you witnessing for the Lord in your particular situation? Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus might be saying to us this morning, as he said 2,000 years ago, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. Is Jesus challenging us today? Amen.